Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And... Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. On this week's show, everything gets a little bit geopolitical. We talk about Gibraltar, the security services, an EU army, NATO, and also with the clock ticking down on the UK's two-year negotiation period. Would a three-year transitional deal be a benefit? Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast about, of course, Brexit. We are, as always, brought to you from Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. Before I continue, just a quick appeal from me. If you like what you hear, go on to iTunes and please leave us a review. It makes the world of difference. Anyway, as always, I'm joined by Christian Spence. Hi. Hi, you OK? And, of course, Alex Davis. Hi. OK, boys, let's get into this. Um... We're going to talk a little bit about something which is mentioned in the Article 50 letter. We touched on it last week, but in effect, is the UK going to use its security apparatus and its armed forces as a bargaining tool in Brexit? That's a good question. Um, I mean, politically, it's probably a very strong... It's one of the strongest positions the UK has, I guess. You know, the UK is... Without a doubt, the dominant leader in in both armed forces, defence, in security cooperation, in intelligence sharing, um, you know, the, the UK leads the EU and has done for for some time in all of that area. Um, now, as you said, this was this was kind of hinted at in in Theresa May's Article Fifty letter to Donald Tusk, uh, where she says, you know, if we you know we don't want to leave without a deal because it's you know it's, it would cause it would cause problems for both sides, uh, and of course, if we don't have a deal on trade, if we don't have any deal. Then you know there'll be challenges about how the UK uh, supports Europe on security. Mm. Um, some of the media went, I think, a bit nuts over that and said this is a you know that's an incredibly strong game to be playing at this stage. But of course, you know, in previous podcasts we've talked about this challenge of no deal, um, and these are the things that are the realities of no deal. It's not just about trade and customs and tariffs. It is about all these other agreements that the that the either the UK has signed with the EU or they exist within the EU treaties about how we cooperate. And defence and intelligence are not surprising two of the very big areas that the uh, all European member states have cooperating closely with the you know the change in the world sort of post nine eleven. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of an eye-opener, really, because on this side of the channel, we do see the EU very much as a trading, um, a trading bloc. On the other side of the channel, they see the EU far more as something to integrate many, many countries to avoid war, and it's a much more of a political project. I actually think that this is one of the few hands that the UK has which plays into that narrative. You're right, and I think this actually plays into the heart of kind of the way, you know, we've always said, you know, the, the UK has never been a proper player in the EU mm-hmm. in the way that the other member states have been. We've never t- we've never seen it as the same sort of goal. Um, despite that phrase, you know, everyone talks about this ever closer union phrase, which is embedded all the way back to the Treaty of Rome. The UK's never really wanted that. It's never signed up to the political project um, of the EU. And I think that goes to it goes certainly to the heart of a lot of the tensions that you've seen now released with um, you know post the referendum decision is actually we just never saw it like this um, and I think for this you've got to st- take a step back and kind of look at European history uh, and look at UK history um, so of course for a lot of those EU member states if we treat you know the initial six France Germany Belgium Luxembourg all of those and then particularly as it's grown. Actually, the EU very was at the. It really was at the, the heart of trying to make sure war doesn't happen again. Mm. How do we make sure that by you know integrating ourselves economically and through you know particularly closer trade in those early days, that we work together, we make sure we don't fall into the you know into the battlegrounds of constantly fighting over each other's borders. For those AA taxation countries, so the two thousand and four intake um, of the, of the old Soviet bloc, essentially. Of course, the EU demonstrated and was for them an, an eye-opener into a world of stability and democracy and economic cooperation, which they'd not only, you know, they'd, you know, if you think of a sort of post, you know, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and World War One, Germany's dominance over those states um, between World War One through into World War Two, then the Russian takeover of those states um, in the 40s and beyond, and communism. The EU for them really is a genuine sense of liberation and re-establishing national identity. Mm. Um, and that is the heart of that project. The challenge for the UK, of course, is all of those things which those other member states wanted, not only from the EU, but wanted generally, but the EU was the mechanism by which they could deliver it. The UK has essentially had, bar you know, a couple of skirmishes, for a thousand years. You know, the seeking of democratic stability, of open and honest, you know, and non-corrupt government, of non-dictatorships, of borders that haven't moved. That's been the case for, for, for the UK for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, you know, some people have kind of reflected back on, you know, some of the Remainers particularly have reflected back on things like actual Thatcher's view on wanting to move to a single market. Uh, I wanted to move that but that was all from our point of view that was always seen through an economic cooperation and trading agreement um, where Thatcher started to row back um, just before essentially she was toppled as, uh, as leader and prime minister in 1990 was essentially moving into that Maastricht treaty phase moving into you know, the post what was then the single European act which started to pull the EU into one single body uh, which started to unite it around uh, a closer to a political union, the birth of monetary union, 
Um, that's when essentially the Thatcher view of Europe started to change and said, actually, this isn't what we want. And yeah. Many of you, I guess, will remember that big three no's speech um, not long before she was she was toppled in the House, where she said, you know, the, it's not the way Europe is moving forward is not right. They want the European Commission to function as the civil service. They want the European Council uh, to function as the cabinet. No, no, no. Um, so we've never wanted what Europe wanted. And I guess you know, the challenge in untangling all of this is the UK actually fronting up a bit of honesty about that. Because the truth is we never did want um, political union. We wanted a big trading union. Um, and so, yes, we know we're now talking about sort of the security cooperation side. It's a big leveraging tool for us, certainly because we've got it. The challenge now becomes how does that play politically? Do we advance the discussions in the UK and the EU's favour by dangling things like, if you don't give us a free trade deal, we'll stop defending you? Well, do you think this is just a coincidence that this would be mentioned at a time when the EU or other NATO members, I should add, are under a lot of pressure from America to up their defence spending. UK is one of only three partners in NATO to spend the mandatory 2% of GDP. Everyone else is 1.7, um, I think the lowest is Luxembourg at 0.75. That's right, and of course the, the slight odd one out everyone's surprised that is Greece, um, which is one of the ones that, uh, that, that spends the 2%. But of course, if you again go back to Greece's history, you know, it's, it still maintains significant armed forces along its border with, uh, mm. along its border with Turkey. Yeah, I think it's Greece, um, UK, or Poland, and I think actually, mm. I, I, think it's four, I think it's one of the Baltic states too. Mm. And it would be interesting to see actually if these negotiations would mean that we pull our forces out of the Baltic states and we've currently got air defensive, currently got troops on rotation there. Yeah, I mean, the, my gut reaction is I can't see that we would. And again, this is where, you know, some of the political blurring through the, through the both campaigns over the past year uh, around security and stability in Europe and who's delivered it. There's, I think there's some blurring here between the EU and NATO. Mm. Uh, undoubtedly, NATO has played, um, at least in terms of the the technical and financial ability to deliver all of that stuff NATO has played a much more important role than the EU mm. the EU has certainly delivered the political stability um, which has allowed that but of course frankly Europe's defence um, its its intelligence cooperation uh, its defence forces are basically bankrolled by the US by the UK uh, and to some extent France that's really where the actual military might comes from. Now, is it in the UK's interest to start to pull troops back from you know, the eastern states' borders, particularly with Russia um, sort of twitching itself now? Uh, no, I don't think it is. And I think that would also, you know, regardless of what happens within the EU negotiations, we remain, as do almost all other EU member states, members of NATO. And so our commitments under that treaty remain, um, you know, remain in place, um, whatever happens with Brexit. Yeah, I think it's also important to remember exactly how intertwined the UK defence policy is with the Europeans. I mean, it goes to such an extent that we share aircraft carriers with the French. Um, we're constantly on joint operations o uh, over in the Baltic states. Uh, untangling all this is going to be a, a mildly difficult thing because people don't realise it isn't incredibly uh, well integrated. In fact, to the point that if we want any of our future aircraft fixed, 
The only place that we can fix them is Italy, because that's the only country with the licence to fix, fix the aircraft. So it won't be as easy as people think. No, and again, this comes back, you know, this recurrent point we've talked about here in these podcasts over weeks is about the implications of no deal. Mm. Um, is it's not just about trade and tariffs. I know I keep saying this, um, but as you said, you, know, you, you crucially there mentioned the words, Jonathan, the licence to repair aircraft. <laughs> yeah. That's part of the EU treaties and the way the EU regulations. So essentially, outside of the EU with no deal whatsoever, um, the licenses for aircraft maintenance, for aircraft certification, for defence certification, for nuclear fuel certification, all of those things expire with no deal. Mm. Um, and so that is, I mean, increasingly why, you know, we've always said no deal will be insane, but it's also kind of increasingly why I guess our view is that no deal will never happen. Mm. You know, even if you got to the, the 11th hour, something would be pulled out because the ramifications of no deal yeah. are colossal. Now, one of the most bizarre things to come up of late, and I say bizarre, I, I guess it makes sense politically for them to raise this issue, but it just doesn't feel like what European countries do with each other, is the discussion on Gibraltar. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, home of the European uh, gambling industry, yeah. uh, amongst other things. This is, a, this is an intriguing one, because of course, when, uh, when Spain joined the EU, it was required as part of that process um, to essentially renege on the rights it would like to have over Gibraltar mm. uh, as, a, as a British overseas territory. Um, so, you know, in many ways, that you know, it kind of put the cap on this this rise of, uh, of of nationalism, of territorial claims, and that's all just gone away and been forgotten about. And of course, in a week, yeah, in, but in a week, all of a sudden, this comes to a head. Um, and I guess that was sparked really by the by the European Parliament's uh, report uh, after we triggered Article Fifty, uh, which said that any particular deal um, between the UK and and the EU, which uh, which talks specifically about rights for um, rights for Gibraltar, has to have specific sign off by by the Kingdom of Spain. Um, which he said, as you said, has provoked a colossal rise in, in nationalism and, and all sorts of things, both in Spain and and in the UK. Mm. Part of me feels it's overblown in the sense that, well, actually, Spain would have a veto anyway. Whatever the deal that comes through is, every single member state uh, will, will have to do something with it. So there would be a veto anyway. So Spain always could have blocked. Um, that's certainly true. But it kind of points to this bigger issue of. You know, actually, some of the EU's borders and territorial controls are not as fixed and firm as we might have thought a long time ago. Mm. Um, you know, the if you think of the big issues that are rising around in this, so the Gibraltar, Spain, Britain one has just been you know blown up in the last week or so. Spain, of course, still has its own internal tensions between uh, between central Madrid and then ca both Catalonia and Basque. Um, both of those two regions, of course, have been campaigning for independence from Spain uh, for a very long time. Um, Madrid has recently said that it is happy to invoke, I can't remember what clause number it is, uh, but invoke the clause in its constitution, which says that central government can take complete control over any regional government um, in a state of emergency. And uh, they said essentially if Catalonia wants to have another go at an independence referendum, Madrid will do that. So there's some big tensions there. And then of course that plays into, into two of the things happening in the UK. One is the challenge of maintaining an open border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, mm -hmm. which I've not said in these podcasts before, certainly I have in other things we've done, is we must not underestimate that is probably one of the single hardest things to deliver yeah. uh, in the Brexit process. A, because it is technically and legally enormously challenging, 
Um, you know, the uh, Republic of Ireland never signed up to Schengen, um, as and the UK didn't either. Schengen is the agreement amongst EU states which allows for passport, no checks at borders, essentially. Um, but of course, you and I know if we travel from France to Germany, our passports aren't checked. But if we come back into the UK, they are. Um, so Ireland's never been a part of Schengen because of the what's called a common travel area, which was established between the UK and the Republic of Ireland uh, after um, after Irish independence. So we can travel without passports between between the UK and the Republic of Ireland. So keeping that border open whilst the UK walks away from the EU and the single market and how you handle goods customs checks across that is not going to be an easy one. Amplified in difficulty, of course, by the enormous sensitivity of the political situation um, at that border. Last one, of course, then is the Scotland issue, um, which, you know, we've had the first independence referendum. Um, the SNP wants a second one. Uh, Theresa May has said, not while Brexit's going on. Um, so if you play all of this together, this tension about what happens with borders, and then, of course, this political issue, you know, we've, we saw, you know, we said in the last podcast, this rise of the politics in all of this now. So you see things like there was an interesting report in the uh, in the press last weekend, talking about actually there's a real danger for the UK government in its negotiations internally because if it says actually the uh, the Republic of Ireland Northern Ireland border isn't a problem, we can solve that we can make that go away. Then actually one of their big leveraging tools to try and stop Scottish independence that you would end up with a hard border between England and Scotland oh. also melts away as an argument. Um, so, and then, yes, you know, does, can Scotland come into the EU? That's a big challenge for Spain, because if, Spain, if that sets the precedent, then it's easier for Catalonia to try and walk. There's a lot of long-standing, you know, decades and decades-long political policy going on here. I'd just point out that the reason I'm so silent is because most of this stuff happened before I was born. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I think there are, obviously Ireland and, and the Scottish referendum is going to become a, a, a big issue. But this whole Gibraltar thing, which has kind of blown up just over this past weekend, is, again, this is another thing which I think is kind of blown out of proportion, thanks to some unhelpful comments by old-fashioned uh, Tories, essentially. Um, yeah, but the, sorry, the, the <laughs> weird thing is something like generals saying, well, our, our Navy could still severely damage the Spanish Navy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, why, why, are we, why are we talking about this? Um, but I, I was just going to ask, ask whether, do you think this Gibraltar thing has been brought up? I mean, lots of people have criticised us for, for what are perceived to be kind of negotiating... Uh, tactics has this Gibraltar thing been brought up potentially as as a negotiating uh, ploy from the other side? Because I, I've I've read I've read that it, within Whitehall there were lots of suggestions flying around that we should include something about Gibraltar in the Article Fifty letter, and then it was repeatedly decided that we shouldn't and that we should just leave it. And then immediately in the EU's response, they come back with just this. Oh, by the way, right at the end of the document, I might add. Oh, by the way, we'll just mention that Spain has a veto over anything to do with Gibraltar, and and no one kind of picks up on the fact that maybe that's a bit of a sneaky negotiating ploy. No, I, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the great irony in all of this is, you know, we went, Theresa May went to great uh, care when trying to work out the best date to trigger Article 50 to avoid the 25th of March. Uh, because yeah. the 25th of March was the 60th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Rome, uh, that first treaty which kind of gave birth to what is now the European Union. Because politically, of course, that would have been... It's not helpful, is it, when you're trying to set off negotiations where you know you need to bring people together to just sort of go around and say, you know, oh, by the way, happy birthday, but we're, we're off. off. 
Um, but then, on the 35th anniversary of the UK defending an overseas territory in the Falklands from invasion by a Spanish-speaking country, <laughs> the EU happens to say, oh, by the way, yeah, don't forget about Gibraltar, you know, because Spain are kind of interested in that too. Yeah. And you think, this, yeah, and I think with Alex, I think this is, it's blown up because this is, this is the political explosion. You know, we've, they, everyone's tried to keep the lid on the politics whilst we, you know, we get Article 50 away and it's all started. Now we have this free-for-all where everyone starts to make ridiculous over-the-top comments. You can't even really lump Gibraltar and Northern Ireland and Scotland into the same thing because obviously there you've got the issues over borders. But I read this morning that the, the border to Gibraltar has one road that's called Winston Churchill Avenue. So if there were ever, <laughs> if there were ever going to be customs checks, it wouldn't be, that, wouldn't be that much of an issue. No, that's <laughs> it. Um, it's, it's interesting, though. I mean, they're, they're heavily integrated. 10,000 border, border crossings a day, apparently, uh, between between the two. But the bit that's forgotten is Gibraltar's not a member of the customs union. So no, and, and, oh, right, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, and you know, this isn't the first time that I have, you know, there have been notorious occasions where there's been uh, queues on the Spanish border, uh, a lot of Spanish nationals go into Gibraltar to work, you've got uh, Spanish trawlers dropping blocks of concrete just outside, outside of the port to create a reef for fish, you've got British destroyers showing up every now and again on port visits. I mean, this isn't particularly new, although I, I actually quite welcome it in, into the debate, because at least we know where we stand now. Yeah, and as I said, I suspect the truth is we're going to see a lot more of this over over the coming months. Um, you know, politically, the EU is in a is in a difficult place in all of this, as indeed are we to some extent. Um, and I think this kind of just it just highlights the fact that you know everyone talks about you know the negotiations with the EU as they come forward. We have to remember it is technically with the EU, but it's with twenty seven nations, mm-hmm. each of whom have got very different views on on how all this should uh, should play out. Some good interviews with the. Uh, BBC World this weekend um, with some uh, with civil servants and politicians from Poland. Poland is much more keen that the that the EU works towards a, the softest of soft Brexit. I think was the phrase yes. um, they used on uh, on Sunday um, because they see the free movement of people. They see the opportunities that uh, that the UK has helped to deliver for a lot of Polish citizens uh, as being really important. Germany and France, of course, have much more economically to play in this in terms of sheer hard cash. They're going for a slightly harder line. Um, Spain has got all of these issues about these extraterritorial bodies. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, of course, it's shouting about Gibraltar, but it's, it's not talking yet about uh, Ceuta, um, the Spanish city in Morocco, which uh, it still has ownership over. Um, you've got all of these other borders, you know, with, with Scotland and the Republic of Ireland. So I think we're going to see over the coming months lots more of this. As just well, everyone gets their politics out has the chance to air it um, and then hopefully if we can have a nice silly summer with all of this we can settle down in September to something a bit more serious As I want to say I, you know, I wish I knew a bit more about Spanish politics but then I realised I didn't wish that um, I, I wonder how much of an impact the Gibraltar issue has had on, on Spanish politics on, on the whole because you mentioned before Scotland my understanding is that they've now said that Scotland is free to join the EU, which is a complete backtrack on its previous position because, of course, of its own internal tensions. And I wonder how this is all all impacted. Yeah, and and the fact that that comment came out the day after the the you know the the the, the, the telegraph it was the telegraph sort of particularly unhelpful column. He said we started to talk about the fact that our navy could still beat the Spanish navy, um, which kind of ignores the fact that we're both in NATO, so we can't <laughs> yeah. really uh, we shouldn't really be going to war with each other. Um, 
so yes, so the statement on Gibraltar, Spain then said, actually, we would we would no longer utilise a veto uh, to stop Scottish membership of the EU. So a new member state coming to the EU will require uh, 100% vote from all existing member states to get in. Spain has historically said it would veto Scotland's membership of the EU, as you said, primarily because of its own internal tensions. It's been historically it's been terrified of the precedent being set that if Scotland secedes from the United Kingdom and applies and joins to the United uh, to to the European Union, that sets a precedent that kind of gives the nod to Catalonia. That if Catalonia declared independence from Spain, it too could just rejoin the EU uh, and carry on independently. Um, so Spain's position has always been we we can't allow that as a precedent. Now, suddenly they've changed their mind. Um, and you can't help but think that it's the Gibraltar issue that's kind of brought that to face. That all of a sudden, Spain has... it. All of a sudden, you're allowed to talk about this stuff. Yeah. All of a sudden, the, the rise of who owns what and who can go where is back on the public table in a way it hasn't been for 30 or 40 years. Um, so, yeah, it's... The whole thing is sort of increasingly interesting. Um, One of the things I often wonder about the interaction between NATO and the EU is... Are they deliberately underfunding NATO in order to, when the UK leaves? Because I, I, I do actually believe that they've always wanted an EU army, but it's the UK that have always, always said no. And I wonder if actually once we leave, if they do do this, and actually is it a good thing? Because a closer, stronger Europe is probably a good thing for post-Brexit Britain. Yeah, and, and in many ways, I think that's always been... European, you know, UK foreign policy on Europe for, I was going to say decades, but probably in reality, centuries. Um, you know, the, the, the UK's old line on Europe has always been never allow one power to become completely dominant. Um, but, you know, undoubtedly the view, you know, in the last 50 or 60 years has been, you know, a united and strong Europe, of course, is beneficial to the UK. Um, lots of people quote Churchill on this, you know, where post-Second World War he talked about, you know, it's important that we find a way to integrate Europe. Um, I think the bit that's missed in all that, of course, is he never intended the UK to be part of that. Yeah. Uh, he was thought that Europe had to integrate, but of course, you know, historically, the UK has, the UK has never been Europe in that sense. Um, so I think, yes, we will, yes, naturally we'll pull out of the UK. I think, and you're right, I think, as well, Jonathan, to talk about, you know, the, the EU has always hinted at this concept of a single army. Uh, and the latest five presidents report from the EU you know, talks increasingly about a common defence force, uh, a common security arrangement, um, a common diplomatic arrangement, so the EU embassies sort of sprouting around. Um, so I think that's where they're going. Is that beneficial to us? As you say, I can't see how it isn't. Yeah. I, I can see how some people might get slightly twitchy that this is, you know, the building of a single European army and you know what's going to happen with that. But uh, in the, you know, if you look from from the Europe's point of view, from the EU's point of view, with the tensions on its southern Mediterranean border, um, with uh, with the the rise of the migrant crisis from from North Africa and from the Middle East. Um, the challenges of the Syria-Turkey situation uh, on its southeastern border, and of course, the increasingly aggressive rise uh, of Putin's Russia. Um, I don't see why. You know, of course, Europe needs to move to something like that, and I really don't see why we wouldn't be happy in supporting it. Yeah, I mean, furthermore, I can't see any solution for a country like Greece other than some sort of common fiscal policy, and they can only get that from a, from a federalised Europe. Yeah, and in many ways, this has been analysts' view of, of the EU for a long time. Is that you know it probably is it is almost certainly unsustainable in its current form. Um, it's too much of a hybrid, 
you know, they've, they've done the economic convergence with, well, they've tried to do the economic convergence with the euro to deliver a single currency, um, but you've still got separate national debt systems, uh, you've still got national fiscal systems, uh, and of course you've still got national political systems, albeit with the EU layered over the top. Um, and I think increasingly analyst views are the EU has to do one of two things. It either has to integrate properly uh, and deliver you know, single economic structure, um, understanding that transfer payments from the rich north are going to have to be made to the poorer south, or it is going to have to loosen out into, into just a trading relationship uh, and cede some of the ground it's taken over the past 20 years. The latter feels unlikely, mm. certainly unless it's forced, you know, I mean, never, never say never, um, but I think you would need an al- a crisis on an almighty scale for that to well, happen. Strange enough, that is one of the options outlined in Juncker's five different plans plans for the future, which is just become a, become a loose trading body. There are also the other options, which is full, full federalisation, so he's covered pretty much every base there. Um, there's been, a, been some talk of late of a three-year transitional deal. Yes. What, what exactly does this mean? And how does it work with the two with the two year time limit on Brexit negotiations? Um, so this is something which was included in the EU's immediate response to the Article 50 letter, which uh, essentially it, it laid out the fact that they kind of accept that there might need to be a transitionary deal, something which Theresa May has said that we, we want and something that would be needed. Um, but they've also put a time limit on it of three years. So they're suggesting essentially that we can move to some kind of transitionary arrangement, but by uh, end of March 2022, I guess, um, that we would need to then transition from there onto something else. Now, where does this come from? Because it sounds very odd that this would come out when they haven't even decided what order they're going to negotiate the, the negotiations. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it, it's basically come out of the realisation that this can't be done in two years. I, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone's ever been under any other impression. Um, uh, and, and the EU's kind of also set out its negotiating strategy that trade will come after other th- other things that we need to kind of we might need to figure out essentially where we want to be, uh, let's say in in ten years. But the actual negotiating of how we get there might not happen until uh, after the two year negotiations. Um, it, it's kind of been suggested. Um, so they've they've allowed us the the idea of a transitionary arrangement, um, but they've put a time limit on it, which I think is reasonable. And I don't think I don't necessarily think that five years even five years will be enough to get some of this stuff uh, finally sorted out. But one interesting thing which he does raise is that um, one of the major kind of uh, fightbacks against uh, other other types of strategies, so something like the Norway option, um, was that uh, many people argued that if we went down that kind of route that we would get stuck there. So it was better for us to kind of avoid that kind of thing and go for a bit more of a kind of big bang type Brexit, um, basically to avoid us kind of slipping back in at a later date or being kind of closely aligned and just staying there for 10 years. But if there is going to be uh, a time limit in law of any transitionary arrangement, it kind of, for me, puts the idea of something like the EEA um, um, as, a, as a transitionary arrangement, uh, firmly back on the table, and definitely something which we should uh, go back to considering. Um, you mean leaving the EU but staying in the European Economic Area? Yeah, it, it, well, yeah, it's it's, it's been suggested. Uh, it's been suggested that we might not actually leave the EU until 2022, um, mm-hmm. depend, depending on what this transitionary arrangement is, or certainly we might not leave the single market officially until 2022. I mean, we've been saying for, for ages, and, and everyone sort of is in agreement that the type of trade deal that we need, which is much more comprehensive than CETA, for example, um, 
is is the chances of it happening in two years are, are, are close to zero um, uh, and I'd suggest that the chances of it happening in five years are slim as well um, so the the kind of argument that that was happening before the referendum even was that by doing something like the EEA option and remaining in the single market for an extended period of time after the negotiations, what we would do is essentially take trade off the table uh, for the Article 50 negotiations. We'd figure everything else out. And then once we're kind of officially out of the EU, um, we'd still be in the single market, which would then give us some time to negotiate the rest of it. So Um, do you think that the three-year transitional deal is basically a way for the EU to say, right, we're going to park trade? Let's yeah. get the politics sorted first, and then we can talk about that later. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of been the argument the whole time for for something like the the Norway option. But as I said, uh, many kind of Brexiteers uh, went on the defensive about that and said that if we end up in a situation like Norway, we'll never move on from there, um, and we'll never divorce uh, ever further. And so we'll we'll kind of always have this this tie to the EU. But I, um, I guess the, the Brexiteers will also say if you join the EU, you'll never exit. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Um, but I, I I think it's I think it's a reasonable come back uh, and I think the three year time limit is a a good suggestion because it it, it definitely solidifies the fact that the EU doesn't want us to be stuck in any kind of interim arrangement either Um, and so for me it kind of it potentially brings things like uh, extended membership of the EEA back onto the table. Alvin, just when do you think we're going to get the the next big announcement from either Europe or the UK regarding moving Brexit forward? Well, do, do, is, is, is there any timetable even on announcements yet? I think, yeah, n- nothing in the long term. So the, the next thing to watch for is uh, is the end of April. So mm-hmm. European Council um, are meeting. Uh, that's their next scheduled meeting of the diaries. That will almost certainly be the meeting at which they agree their negotiation strategy uh, for the whole deal. So that's the point, I think, at which the council minister says, this is what we want to go forward with. These are our red lines. Over to you, European Commission, the civil service of the EU, go away and negotiate this. Um, that's probably the next big one. So I think by the time we get there, we should at least know where, where they want to end up, or at least some of the situations in which they don't want to end up. Um, and then off it goes to the civil servants to start the negotiations. The big challenges, of course, are that's not likely to move forward too quickly in the short term because of the French elections. Excellent. Right, gents, and, um, anything more to add before I wrap this up? I don't think so. I, said, I think the big thing for me is the, you know, the, the rise of the political shouting in the last couple of weeks. Now, now things are underway. Um, I understand it's important probably for a lot of people to get all of this off their chest. I think for some politicians, they've been sat on some of these things for decades. Uh, they've seen a window of opportunity in which, to, uh, in which to shout and sort of go back to old form, hoping it's just a, a little brief moment in all this and that sanity will be resumed shortly. Well, all this political shouting is certainly important for one thing, and that's Brexit podcasts. So, uh, where can we find you on Twitter, please, uh, Christian? Uh, you can find me at GMCC Research. Alex? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And also, go and visit the blog of the same name, Last Week in Brexit. And if you feel like it, come, come and find me at Jay Beardmore or at work, which is Pearsons underscore FSB. We'll be back with you next week. Uh, until then, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.